You're listening to the Bethel Baptist Podcast. This recording is from our adult Sunday school class. Today's lesson is taught by Keith Wilkinson. One of the things we left off on, we have, I've got up here on the screen, we talked in verses 3 to 12 in James chapter 1. It's really, we have this directive by James about considering all joy. And so then we looked at, how do I do that? How is it that I consider it all joy as I go through trials? And we mentioned those four things there, have the right understanding of trials, submit to God's will, have steadfast faith, which is one of the things Pastor Kirk mentioned uh, this morning, as well as to be humble about who you are. Uh, We need to make sure we, we think of those things as we are going through trials. That's how we're able to count it all joy. Uh, One of the things that we did not answer that we had in the last outline is that question then why should i consider it all joy we we, james tells us how to do that uh, but we can always be left with a question of why should i do that and for some people maybe it's not that clear in verses 3 through 11 on why i should do that i think there's certainly ample answer there in 3 through 11 because we're talking about how this is moving us on to uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. It's what is expected of, a, uh, expected of us. It's God's will for our life as we move on or eventually are going to move on into heaven. All right? That's, that's how we become complete, as Pastor Kirk was mentioning this morning. And so we, we should rejoice in that. We should re- you know, sometimes seems contradictory. I'm going through these horrific trials, and somehow I'm supposed to rejoice in that. Well, we rejoice in that, not based on the trial itself, but what it's leading to. And again, that comes into the heavenly perspective. It's not not the trial itself. It's what it is moving me toward. And so we want to um, be mindful of that. But back to this question, why should I consider all joy in Really, we see that in verse 12, the answer, or maybe a, a, a more full answer there in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, that's the ultimate. That's what we're moving on to, that crown of life. And we'll unpack, unpack verse uh, 12 here. Um, uh, as we go through this this last part of really verses 1 through 12. So when we persevere, then we're approved. And when we are approved, we receive the crown of life, uh, which is what Pastor Kirk mentioned right out of, uh, uh, that comes out of First Peter 5 as well. We see that same thing. What he's talking about there is salvation, the reality of our salvation. Yes, we have salvation now, we're saved now, but we don't fully realize that until we go to heaven. Right, it's like what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. We have an inheritance. That inheritance is there. It's ours. It's a guarantee. It's not going anywhere. Do we have it yet? Yes, we, we do have it. All right, It's there. Have we fully realized it? No, not yet. <laughs> we will. And that is what we're moving toward. Right, So that is... Um, that is one of the reasons I should consider all joy. I mean, that should really ultimately be enough. I know that that is coming. And 
doesn't matter what's going on in this life. Uh, again, you go back to Job. I think that's a great, a great, great example. But Job does know there's something else coming. Um, he, he wants to still have this discussion with God um, because he's examined his life and he doesn't see anything in it that warrants him going through what he's going through. And again, a lot of that you can tie to old um, Middle Eastern thought. If I, uh, if I haven't done anything wrong, then God is pleased with me. Uh, or from the circumstances of life are such that uh, life is skipping along, God is pleased with me. And if I have done something wrong, then God is mad at me. But if I've examined my life and I haven't done anything wrong, at least that I, I can uh, discern, then there's no reason for God to punish me. And we don't see the heavenly perspective in that, right? We think of that in earthly terms, and that's something we can't do. So we have to, we have to think about it again in, in how God is seeing things. And sometimes that's hard for us to do. One thing I do want to mention about verse 12 is people uh, talk about this when it says a man is, uh, who perseveres under trials. Uh, and then it's moving on to the crown of life, salvation, the full realization of salvation. And they say, well, isn't that works-based salvation? No, that's not what James is talking about at all. He's just talking about the reality of what is coming, right? How do we know that a person is truly saved? One of the reasons we know or one of the uh, telltale signs that a person is truly saved is that they do persevere, which is back to the Philippians 1.6 passage that Pastor Kirk mentioned this morning. Right, The good work that, that God began in us, he will complete it. He is the one working in and through us uh, to see all of those things through. He is using trials in our life to see those things through. And so that is part of the perseverance. It's not us doing something to earn salvation. It is moving through those trials, fully trusting God and his promises. When we persevere, we show that we are not relinquishing God's promises, that we are holding firm and fast to God's promises. And that's why I was so thankful this morning that Pastor Kirk mentioned the Hebrews 12 passage. Because again, there's example after example after example of people who have gone through horrible things. And they continue to trust God in all of it. You know, you really, I mean, just, you just think of Moses. Um, would you want to be leading millions of people, millions of grumbling people through the desert? Uh, no, you, you wouldn't, right? And time and time again, they blame him for everything. They blame him for things that they actually did. That's why I, I've mentioned this before. That's why I really like uh, Numbers chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah in the wilderness. In that story, Korah and his gang rebel against Moses. Ultimately, they're rebelling against God. But they, they are blaming Moses for the situation they're in. But all you have to do is go back <laughs> a couple of chapters and find out that they were on the verge of the promised land. And the report came back, right? Ten of the spies said, That's, they're too big. Uh, there's too many of them. We shouldn't go in. 
And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, God told us to go in, we should go in. Right? Unfortunately, the majority kind of ruled in that case. Of which was Korah and the rest. Korah, Dathan, and the rest of the gang. They were the ones that decided, no, we shouldn't go in. But in number 16, who do they blame for not going in? Moses. And so, again, those are things we see, uh, again, over and over again. Um, and you see God's grace in all that, even in the midst of the, the uh, destruction in number 16, you see Moses pleading for the lives of the rest of the people to be spared. Um, there is, is mass, mass casualty there, and Moses see it, sees it. He sees it unfolding, and yet he pleads for those people to be saved, uh, to not be slaughtered. Uh, and so those are the types of things that we're talking about here when we're talking about trusting in God, um, knowing that God's working things out. God will move things forward in his time and in his way. So and that's what it's talking about when we persevere. And we have all those people in Hebrews 12 that have persevered. And so those are just, they should be encouragement to us as we think about that. But in 12 there, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial um, for once he has been approved, once he's been approved, that really is talking about the passing of the test of our faith. Our faith is going to be tested throughout our life. It's, it's going to happen. We talked about that uh, at the very beginning. It's not a if we're uh, going, going to go through trials, it's when we're going to go through trials. And as we go through those trials, and we do that over and over and over again. That's how we gain the endurance that's talked about. And uh, eventually, uh, when we're approved and we're ready to go home to be with the Lord, we have passed the test with our faith intact. That's kind of what this perseverance is talking about. And that should bring about complete inner joy and satisfaction. And really, James is using an athletic term here when he's talking about the wreath that is placed on the victor's head, right? You, you don't get the wreath on your head halfway through the race, right? You don't get it three-quarters of the way through the race. You get it at the end of the race. And so that's a, another thing for us to be mindful of and, and why we should consider it all joy as we are moving through these trials. It's very important um, uh, that we think about that. The end, of, the end of this is also very important. As we see, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We can think about this in that sense too, that uh, how do we know if we truly love the Lord? We truly love the Lord if we persevere through trials. That's why it's very important to have this heavenly attitude as we, uh, we, we go through these, uh, one after another. For some people, they've been through, uh, what's the old saying, uh, more trials than you can shake a stick at. Um, other people, maybe not so much. That doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It just means that God is growing them in different ways, maturing them in different ways. 
And so that's why it's very dangerous to compare ourselves to other people and what they're going through versus what I'm going through or the other way around. We just can't do that um, because God has something in there for us and is moving us along. Um, this is from an, old, uh, from an old 19th century evangelist. He says, eternal life is for those who love God. If our love for God is based on our happiness, or if we do not love God for who he is, but for what we get out of the deal, then we show that we have a great deal of love for self, but no real love for God. And we need to think about that as life is skipping along and we don't have trials and our spiritual life seems to be doing really well. And then a trial comes, and now all of a sudden our spiritual life is upside down. If that is the case, then we are kind of showing ourselves to be this kind of person that this evangelist is talking about. Uh, the love I have is not really for God, it's for myself. And that's a dangerous place to be. I think we can all, all see that. And kind of as an aside, that's why I... Um, I really can't get on board with you know, the charismatic movement because that's really all that is. It's based on emotion. If life is going well, then uh, God must love me and, and I'm happy and I'm carefree and I'm skipping along. But if I run into a trial, then somehow my spiritual life is upside down and uh, the Holy Spirit must not be uh, uh, fully dwelling in me and I need to get more of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the attitude that goes on. And that's a very dangerous theological position to be in. We've got to be very careful with those kinds of things. So again, we can think about that, but that's what James is talking about there in, uh, in verse 12. Um, so we, got to be, we have to remember that last part, that eternal life is only for those who love God. So obviously the natural question that comes out of that is, do you love God, right? Do, for me, it's do I love God. For you, it's do you love God. Do you truly love God? Uh, and, and when we talk about love, again, there it talks about taking pleasure in the thing or prizing it above all else and being unwilling to abandon it no matter what happens. That's what this idea of loving God is that we're going to love him no matter what. We love him because of who he is, not because of anything we get, but simply because of who he is. And no matter how bad things get, we are not willing to abandon uh, him. We're not willing to abandon uh, our, our faith in him. And that's what James is trying to point out there. And we could ask ourselves some maybe very basic questions with regard to loving God or things that go along with loving God. We could ask ourselves, is there somebody in the, uh, a fellow Christian that we don't like? Is there a fellow Christian that we hate? And we think we have a good reason for hating that person or despising that person or not wanting to fellowship with that person. And we come up with all kinds of justifications for doing things like that. Right? Um, but if we have that, if we are asked that question and the answer is yes, then we would have to check ourselves on whether or not we're truly a believer, right? We see that in 
in First John chapter four. Uh, the the person who is a, a genuine Christian loves fellow believers, and that's not just here at church. Right? That we'll say hi to them. <laughs> Uh, right, we'll we'll be nice to them while we're at church, but once we're away from church, yeah, not sure I want to spend any time with that person. Right, so th that's just a question we can ask ourselves. Um, uh, same thing with uh, do we keep Christ's commandments? We see that in in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not only we see that first first John two. Not only will we keep the commandments, but they're not burdensome to us, right? You, you see people <laughs> that kind of fight tooth and nail <laughs> when it comes to um, just simple things in the Christian community, um, uh, forgiving one another. Uh, that, that's probably one of the most basic things you can think of with regard to uh, loving a fellow believer, which ultimately shows our love for, for God. Am I willing to forgive somebody who has sinned against me? And that person has repented. They've come back to me and they have told me they've repented. They've asked God for forgiveness. They confess their sin to me, what they did, and they're asking me for, for forgiveness. And if I say, well, you know, let me think about it. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer, right? Because we see that clearly in Scripture. It is crystal clear in Scripture that that forgiveness is to be issued immediately, without hesitation, lovingly, compassionately, graciously, all those things. And so when I resist that, I'm resisting obeying God's commandments. And we just cannot do that, right? Um, and, and that's the, out of the First uh, John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome to me. When we resist his commandments, we show that they are burdensome to us. And we, we just have to be careful with that, right? Do we desire to continue uh, to know the things of God, to do the things of God, right? Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Right? Does your soul thirst for God? You know, something we need to be mindful of. So that's what we, kind of the wrap-up of, of the first uh, 12 verses there uh, in, in looking at this command of consider it all joy. That's how we go about doing, and that, that's why we should uh, be joyful about uh, the, the trials that we encounter, the various trials we encounter. Any questions on those first 12 verses there? We're good. Oh, we're good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, just a clarification on, on the last part. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, is well, you probably know the answer already because I think I just gave it away. But it, it is forgiveness conditional. We're talking about Christian to Christian. Is is forgiveness conditional? Yes. No. I'm not sure. 
Yes, it's, it's conditional. Right? Luke uh, 17. If your brother sins against you, comes back and repents, you forgive them. Right? Now, we've got to make sure we clarify two things here. One is, uh, there is the, between two believers, there's conditional forgiveness. They need to repent. They need to confess what their sin is, and they need to ask for our forgiveness. That's clear in Scripture, crystal clear. If they don't do that, do we have this attitude of revenge or grudge or whatever against them? No. Why do we, or why am I saying that? What am I basing that on? Kenny? Christ's forgiveness of everything we've done. Yeah, you're close. Uh, um, Luke 21, right? When Christ is being crucified, uh, he pleads with the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Now, if we were supposed to just issue blanket forgiveness to anybody, no matter what they're doing to us, then at that point, when Christ is being crucified, that would have been the perfect opportunity for him to say to everybody around there that was killing him, I forgive you. But he doesn't. He pleads with the Father that there might be some way that they're forgiven. He has a heart attitude of forgiveness. He desperately wants them to see their wrong. Now we could get into the talk about how they're not believers and all that kind of stuff, but it's a great example of the reality that these people are uh, committing a heinous act against against him. The worst act that anybody can can commit against another person, killing them. And his heart attitude is that there might be some way that the Father would forgive them. That needs to be our heart attitude as well. We desperately want that person to, to come to their senses, if you will, to see the sin they've committed. Ultimately, it's not necessarily that they're offending me, right? The biggest thing is that they're sinning against God. We want them to see that, and, and we want them to go back to the Lord and confess that, and then come back and ask us for forgiveness. Uh, and that's why we eagerly give it. We, we, we give it immediately, we give it repeatedly, and we give it uh, uh, lavishly. Um, uh, Luke 15, the prodigal son. Um, uh, the, the father forgives lavishly. He comes back, puts the royal robe on him, throws him a party. Uh, that's lavishly. Uh, he forgives him immediately, right? And then in the Luke 17 passage, we see this. Um, uh, you know, Peter thinks he's being, uh, we see it in Matthew 18, Luke 17, where Peter thinks he's being magnanimous. Uh, should I forgive somebody seven times a day? Right? The standard was we forgive them three times and that's it. Right? That was what the, uh, the religious leaders had come up with. Uh, somebody offends you three times, uh, you'll forgive them three times, but there's no way you're going to forgive them four. Right? And so that's why Peter thinks he's being. Very gracious. And that's why when, when Christ says no, that you, you, it's not seven times a day, it's right 70 times seven, or in the Luke 17, it doesn't matter. They come back, they repent, you forgive them. This, this idea that you're going to repeatedly forgive them. 
we, we kind of read that and gloss over it. <laughs> you know, that's okay, that's what the Lord is telling us to do. Uh, in that day and age, that would have been shocking. Uh, I mean, that's you know, that would have been mind-boggling to those that heard it. That's not just some flippant thing that was thrown out there. It's it's bizarre. And so, yeah, so when we think about um, forgiveness, um, it is conditional. Uh, we still need to have a heart attitude of forgiveness to those who are, are not seeing it, right? So even if you go through, as a church, if we would go through the, the uh, church discipline process on somebody, um, um, a fellow believer, uh, right, we would go to them and, and uh, confront them about their sin, and they would not agree. We would take one or two others with, and we would go back, and if they still don't agree, we would tell it to the whole church. And the whole church would approach that person about changing, repenting. And it says there that if they won't repent, then you treat them as a pagan or tax collector. You treat them as an unbeliever. Uh, we don't walk around with some kind of a, a, a grudge or a bitter heart toward that person. Uh, our heart should desperately want them to be forgiven. Uh, but we know that the Scripture is clear on how that happens. Uh, why... Why would we not be embittered against somebody who won't repent? Gary? Right. Yeah, wrong motive, right? We, we understand that we, we, we want to love them if they truly repent. Uh, that's the back to the Matthew 18. We have won our brother. Uh, we have gained something that we didn't have. It's valuable. And so we certainly would have that attitude. Uh, what would be another reason we would want to have that heart attitude of forgiveness? Yeah, Libby. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's really just having this understanding of our position before Christ, um, uh, our position before the Lord, in the sense that we did nothing to um, uh, to earn our salvation, and we really need to understand our offense to the Lord as an unbeliever. I mean, you know, I've used this this uh, example before, but I'm going to continue to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you want to understand your filthiness before the Lord, your sin prior to becoming a Christian, uh, probably even after we're Christian and we sin, it's still uh, heinous. But if you want to have a, a little bit of a good picture about what that was like, go visit a sewage treatment plant. I'm not kidding. <laughs> go see what things look like when it first comes to the sewage treatment plant. That's you. 
That's you before you were a Christian. Now when you get to the other end, when it's all cleaned up, that's you once Christ gets a hold of you. Right? But I don't think there's a much better picture. And if you've never been to a sewage treatment plant, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll, I think I need to organize a field trip. <laughs> I think I'm going to do that. Yeah, it's just our understanding of our, our life before Christ, prior to salvation. Uh, we, that's why we can't uh, under, underestimate or devalue the disastrous reality of sin or what sin results in. Um, it's a heinous thing, right? So yeah, for me, that would be the, the big reason. When we think about um, uh, having this heart attitude of forgiveness, wanting, desperately wanting for someone to be forgiven, is because we know what that relationship is like between them and the Lord. It's not good. And if they don't repent, it's not going to end well at all, right? And so we know how much we've been saved from, and we desire that uh, for those people as well. All right. Any other questions? Good question. But I don't, yeah. I lost the answer. <laughs> I mean, okay, so uh, uh, wasn't the question like, is he to forgive the one, or is he not to forgive the one? With regard to somebody that comes back and repents, yes, you forgive. The one who has not come back and repented, we don't, we don't issue forgiveness to them. We have a heart attitude of forgiveness toward them. We want them to be reconciled to us, but we would never go up to that person and say, I forgive you for whatever. Let's say that, uh, uh, yeah, let's say that, that you tell me a lie. I know it's a lie, and I come to you and I, I, I confront you about it and say, Kenny, you told me a lie when you said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you say, no, I didn't. And I say, well, yeah, just what you said to me, right? And you're saying, that's not, you know, whatever you. Uh, explain it away. I would not at that point say to you, oh, don't worry, I forgive you anyway. All right? Does that make it clear? And that's a, uh, that's a very big, um, uh, that is really kind of a proponent of psychology. Um, this idea that we forgive somebody else, uh, doesn't matter whether they, you know, apart from any kind of repentance on their part, we just forgive them anyway. And the idea behind that is we forgive them so that we feel better. And that, that is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> we, we don't forgive people so that we feel better. It's not about our feelings, right? We've got to be very careful with that. Um, primarily because it's contrary to the Bible. Now we can get into discussions, not today, maybe some other time. When we're talking about believers and non-believers, uh, that, that's a whole different issue in how we want to handle that. Um, I'll say this, that when we talk about a believer uh, and a non-believer and the non-believer has wronged us in some way and they come back and ask us to forgive them, we have to be very careful on how we handle that uh, because we, if we issue this forgiveness, we can be just appeasing their conscience in uh, making them comfortable in their sin, not trying to move them out of their sin. And we want to use those opportunities as opportunities for the gospel to tell them that while I, I could forgive you now, you still have a, a huge problem hanging over your head. 
and that is you are alienated from God. That's the forgiveness you need. Uh, my forgiveness is nothing, right? Uh, so those are the kinds of things we want to think about in that scenario with the believer and the non-believer, all right? All right, Did that clear it up, Ken? Yeah. All right, any other questions? All right, let's move on uh, with some of the time we got left here. On, uh, I'm going to read verses 13 uh, uh, to 27, and then we're going to hone in on 13 to 18. And really what we're doing here is we're moving from uh, trials to temptation. That's what James is, is talking about here. Um, uh, he is going to transition from trials to temptation. He's not going to tell us necessarily uh, how to deal with temptation, but he's going to tell us about the reality of temptation and how we need to rightly think about it. Um, again, we, we can have some distorted views on temptation, and we have to make sure that we, uh, uh, we don't succumb to those wrong thinkings or, or wrong ideas about temptation. So let's go through 13 to 27 and then zero in on 13 to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, sh or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at the natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he, is immediately, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion is in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so again, be mindful of the context that we're talking about here. Uh, these people are dispersed abroad. They're outside Jerusalem. They're outside the land of promise. They're dealing with all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of trials. Uh, and so then James moves on from dealing with that to moving on to the temptation. As we look at verses 13 through 18, uh, just those few verses there, is there anything that jumps out to you as kind of a, a, a centering point in those verses?
Gary. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why do you say that kind of as a centering verse? Okay. 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 Remember that, Jerry. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, you're kind of talking about the same thing, right? And Gary's talking about having a realistic understanding of, of what's going on uh, with a person with regard to our own lust. Uh, and you're talking about kind of the, maybe the flip side of it, which was, uh, would be, don't be, don't be deceived about those kinds of things. Don't be deceived about uh, the lust that you have or the lust that you encounter. And so we could look at those things. Um, uh, in, in, anybody else have any thoughts on how they look at it? Yeah, Bob. It says in, a, uh, in addition to that, it doesn't say if. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm glad Bob brought that up. Yeah, it's not, uh, uh, it's not a, if these things happen, it's when these things happen, which is exactly like we saw with the, with the trials. Uh, it's not if we have trials, it's when we have trials. These things are going to happen. Uh, it's a guarantee. You, know, you can, you know, again, take it to the bank, uh, so to speak, that kind of a thing. So uh, those are yeah, excellent things to think about and consider. So it, for me, and again, people go through these uh, passages and try to uh, move them around or however you want with regard to uh, moving it forward logically. And, and there are probably different ways uh, to do that in, in the sense of structuring, say, a sermon. Uh, and, and those things can be argued or whatever. Uh, for me, I think the, the key there is in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brethren. And so, again, the follow-up to that would be, do not be deceived about what? Do not be deceived about what? That's the question that we would want to take away from um, uh, from this section, as you um, uh, see here, there uh, kind of give it away on the on the sheet there. Um, and I say, what what should we not be deceived about? We see those three things that are there. One of the things is what Gary was talking about. That we don't want to be deceived about temptation. We want to understand rightly understand temptation. We also do not want to be deceived about who we are. Because many times we have a, a much higher opinion of ourselves and the things that we can withstand than we should ever have. Or we have a wrong understanding of uh, just how good we are, right, or what we think. Um, uh, you see a lot of that. We'll talk about that later. You know, kind of this whole trust your heart. Uh, your heart will tell you which way to go. That's a pretty high opinion of yourself <laughs> and a pretty unrealistic opinion of who you really are. Um, so we need to understand those things. So we need to uh, make sure that we're not deceived about temptation. We're not deceived about who we are. And probably the biggest thing here 
is to not be deceived about who God is. And, and maybe that would be the one that we, uh, I might kind of spend the most time on <laughs> just because it's so important for us to make sure that we have a right understanding of who God is. And James addresses that here. And this is all, again, you think about they're going through all these trials. In going through all these trials, that is a temptation in and of itself. In how we look at ourselves, how we look at the Lord, and how we look at, I guess maybe you could say just uh, uh, life in general, but certainly it would be uh, um, an opportunity for them to be deceived about who God truly is. I mentioned that uh, early on with regard to the, the uh, Middle Eastern thought, that if life is going well, God is pleased with you. And we're rejoicing in all the things God is doing for us. And when life throws us a curve and life's not going well, we tend to maybe move in the direction that somehow God is displeased with me, um, and therefore I've done something wrong. We have a, a wrong understanding of who I am, and we have a wrong understanding of who God is in that situation. But these trials that these people are going through, the, the people that have been scattered abroad, um, this is a just that in and of itself is a huge temptation. It's a huge temptation for them to misunderstand who God is, who they are, and the whole idea of temptation itself. And James is wanting them to understand those three things clearly, crystal clearly. And he's wanting us to understand those things as well. He wants us to understand without any doubt what temptation is all about, who we really are, and who God truly is. And so this is challenging. The thing that's interesting is that the trial of the people that he's writing to that they're going through is a temptation for them. As he writes this to us, it's a temptation for us as we go through what he's saying. The same thing applies to us because we're being confronted in these verses with those three things clearly. And it's a way for the Lord to question us and, and kind of say, do you have these things right? Do you know these things for sure? And so let's take a look at some of those things. So again, what is it that God is um, wanting us to not be deceived about? What is James telling his audience to not be uh, deceived about? Certainly God's character, who we are, and the source of our temptation or temptation itself. And again, with all the things going on with these people, it would have been easy for them to doubt God's character. It would have been easy for them to doubt um, what Christianity was all about. It would have been easy for them to uh, really think about what it is that God truly had in store for them. And I mentioned that last week, the, especially being outside the land. That's such a huge thing because the promises of God are tied to the land. If you're outside the land, it would seem the promise of God is nowhere to be found. And so we've got to make sure we, we keep that, right? And so we think about all of those different kinds of things. So he's telling us not to be deceived. We don't want to be led astray. That's what he's talking about. 
Um, it's, it's a warning to not be deceived. It's a warning to make sure we understand the right things. Turn back, uh, I think there's a, certainly a good correlation here with regard to the same kind of phraseology you see in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, let's see here. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Same thing. He's trying to let the, the people in Corinth understand that uh, there, there is an indication of where they are at with behavior, and behavior uh, can tell a lot about what's going on. And they need to know that uh, salvation is not just for anyone because they say so. Salvation is not just for anybody because they want to be saved, but they can continue to live their life however they want to live it. Uh, and this is a great passage to use to uh, use with believers who, number one, think that there are no repercussions for their lifestyle, whatever they're doing, their sin, that they can continue to sin and do whatever it is they want to do. But it's also a great passage to show that people, um, that they're not always stuck in whatever it is they think they're stuck in and there's no, uh, there's no remedy for it in the sense of they can never get away from a particular sin, whether that be being a drunkard or being a liar or being a um, fornicator, being a homosexual, any of those things, that Jesus Christ can take care of all of these things, right? When we are born again, all of these things are dealt with because we now have a new nature, uh, right? And so the whole thing, uh, really, verses 9, 10, and 11 are so important. Uh, finish up, fish, finishing up in nine, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a truth. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then we have the great news in verse 11. And such were some of you, right? You used to be that way, but you're not that way anymore. Why are you not that way anymore? But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Right? That's the reality of what happens to a person when Christ gets a hold of them and changes them and they're born again. All of that stuff is now taken care of. Again, don't take that to mean that people don't still struggle uh, with uh, temptation, all those kinds of things. We know that that's a reality. Um, but again, we've been changed. That's the, the Second Corinthians uh, 5.17, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And, and we well, that's exactly what that passage is talking about. When we're in Christ, we're a new creation. And so we want to be um, uh, mindful of that. But that's what James is getting at. The same thing that we see Paul writing about not being deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't be uh, 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 baffled by some of these things. Um, be right-minded about all of these things. Uh, that's what James is warning uh, his audience about 
And, and certainly that's the, the message we want to take away from that as well. We don't want to be deceived about these three things that I've already mentioned, the temptation, who you are, and who God is. And that's what we start out with uh, again in, in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. That's what Bob pointed out. Uh, temptation is going to happen. Uh, no one is immune to it. Uh, it. It's going to happen. So we need to understand that. It's just like what he mentioned with the trials. Uh, trials are going to come. Uh, and he says there, let no one say when he is tempted. Tempted there has to do with evil, the enticement to do evil, to put to the test, to be enticed to do something that is contrary to God's will. And that includes a whole host of things, right? Um, some, some of the things that are just uh, very basic. Um, as Pastor Kirk was preaching this morning, I was thinking about the... Um, First uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter five, uh, somebody I think it's sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen, um, uh, where it talks about rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Um, how often in our trials are we tempted to stay away from th just those three things? Right? But we 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 go through a trial, uh, we go through a temptation, and um, uh, we, we kind of, as Pastor Kirk mentioned, we isolate ourselves. Uh, we, we're, we stay away from people, right? We're not thankful for what has been done for us already. We stop praying because of our uh, temptation or, or set of circumstances. Just something that simple is reality when we uh, go through these things. So those are things we have to be mindful of, but that's what James is talking about here this enticement to do evil, this enticement to do something that is contrary to God's will. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this outward action, right? It could be something where we're talking about staying away from uh, something like prayer, right? We have to be careful with that. For us, what are what are the what are the, uh, uh, I'll give it away. Uh, what, what are the three ways we're tempted? All right, say that louder, Ann. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Yeah, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are the only three ways we are ever tempted. So you're saying Satan only has three things he can throw at us. Yep, that's it. That's all he threw at us in the garden. All right, he threw that at, at Eve. She was tempted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And that's exactly what we see in Matthew chapter uh, 4 with Jesus. Those are the only three ways he was tempted, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Now, if you were here when we went through the, uh, the little calendar thing by Armin Tiffey with all the sins listed in there, you saw that he's got a hundred and some hundred and some different sins or whatever the count is. Right? There's all these different sins. There's anger, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's uh, unforgiveness, there's it goes on and on and on. All of those sins are just in one of those three categories. Sometimes those sins are in multiple categories, but they're always in just one. 
that, that sin will always be in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. But you think about anger. Uh, anger um, is definitely pride of life. There's no question. All you need to do is look at Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. He thinks he deserves something. He, he offered something to God. Why can't God just take it? I gave you something. Why should I be punished for disobeying you? Right? I mean, that's the attitude that you see coming out of Cain. Think about Jonah. <laughs> that's why I set sail for Tarshish. Because I knew this is what you were going to do. Right? And God says, do you have a good reason to be angry? I mean, the answer is obvious. No. Right? Jonah's not getting his way. He's like a spoiled child. I want this. And if I can't have this because I deserve this, then I'm going to throw a fit. Right? That's what he does. He throws a fit. He's failing to see what God's will is in that situation. He's failing to see, I mean, this is the, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the irony, the bizarreness of whatever. In verses 1 to 4, in chapter 4, he recounts the character of God. <laughs> These great qualities, uh, characteristics of God. And in doing that, he still is ticked off at God. Right? He just doesn't see what's going on. Right? Yeah. 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 He, he's ticked off because God is gracious and compass, compassionate, uh, loving, kind. You know, he, he's, uh, love, he shows his loving kindness, all that. Yeah, he's, he's mad. Right? And in chapter two, he references all those things to get out of the belly of the great fish. <laughs> right? Same kind of thing. So yeah, um, those are that's it when we think about temptation. Uh, all sins are going to fall into one of those three categories. Ultimately, those are the only three sins there really are. Um, and we see that in 1 John 2.16 as well. right? Uh, it is clearly stated there that all is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That, that's a great passage. All that is in the world. There's nothing else. So when somebody else tells us there's a new sin on the block, uh, no, <laughs> sorry. That was settled in, in Genesis chapter 3. And so people can try, but uh, uh, it's just not true. Um, kind of one of the other things in verse 13 that's really important is that uh, that first phrase there, let no one say. You might want to underline that, highlight that, put a little note by it. It's very important. Very important we think about that because what James is saying, saying there is that these things that follow, that he's about ready to talk about with regard to um, uh, let no one say when he's tempted that he's being tempted uh, of God or, or tempted by God. What he's trying to tell them there is that these things should never, I don't know if I can say it strong enough. I don't, I don't know a word. <laughs> I'll just say it this way. These things should never, ever be a thought in our mind 
and should never come out of our mouth. Ever. That's what James is trying to get them to understand. All these horrific things are going on, and this might be the, the temptation that we're talking about temptation. The temptation might be to think these things. The temptation might be to say these things. And he's saying, don't ever let that happen. It's a very strong statement. But he's wanting them to understand that. He's wanting us to understand that. I say that because it's something you hear all the time. <laughs> I can't believe God is making me go through this. It's bad enough to think that, but to say that is horrific. It is horrific. We'll talk about it later about what it says about God, but you need to know that what he is saying there is emphatic. It's demanding. Libby. Yes, it is an imperative. Yeah, yeah, we just cannot say or think those things. It just cannot be on our heart. And that's where if, if we find ourselves in that situation, we really have to check our heart. We really have to check our heart because it says a lot about what we think in the sense of who God is, which we're going to talk about later. But it also says a lot about what we think about who we are. Again, uh, just in a very basic sense, and we'll get to this later, um, um, I mentioned this book before. I would encourage people to get it. But that's um, uh, Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason uh, because he talks in there about um, how over the centuries this elevated view of, or the right view, the biblical view, is that God is way up here and we're way down here. Uh, we're lower than way down here. <laughs> And God is much higher than what we think, right? And over the centuries, that has flipped. And we, we see that in America today. We are way up here, and God is way down here. And that is a disastrous uh, formula. It's a disastrous picture. Uh, we think, if we think in those ways, it's, it's obvious that we have elevated ourselves and we have diminished God. And again, it just shows that we have a very unrealistic understanding of who we are uh, before a, a holy God. And so we have to be mindful of those. So again, that, that, that first uh, little phrase there in 13, again, I would just encourage you to underline that, maybe put a little note there, uh, just in the sense that that should not be a thought in our mind and certainly should not um, uh, come out of our mouths. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. It does. Yeah, it does go really well. What, uh, what Ecclesiastes, what was it? 5, five two. Ecclesiastes 5.2. So, yeah, maybe put a little note there in your Bible as a, a reference to that. Um, and, and really kind of along with what Faith just mentioned there. Uh, so that perspective is key, but it all, it, it's also the perspective we see back in Genesis uh, 3.12, uh, where we have this encounter with, 
um, uh, between God and Adam and Eve, right? They sin, and God comes back and approaches them, and, and he's wanting to know, in essence, what's going on here, what happened. Um, and, and Adam's response in Genesis, uh, Genesis 3.12 is, uh, it says there, the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave from the tree and I ate. Right? I, that is a classic example of man elevating themselves in and devaluing God. Uh, somehow, whatever happened there, I'm not culpable for it. I'm not culpable because you did this thing. You gave me the woman. It's your fault. And what we see there in James is really the same idea. When we entertain the idea that um, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, ultimately we are then blaming God for anything that's going on in our life. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. And that's why he says that, let no one say. Because when we do that, we're turning everything on God. We're assigning the blame for temptation to God, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't what was going on inside their heart. It was God's fault. And he's the one to be blamed. And so again, the important issue is uh, who is the one that is responsible uh, responsible for being enticed or for being put to the test. Uh, who is the one that uh, we need to place blame on? James is crystal clear. It is not God. <laughs> it's not God. If it's not God, then who's to blame? <laughs> Clara May is pointing to herself. She's brave enough to take responsibility. You're, you're right, Claire May. Uh, it's me. It's you. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the blame falls squarely on our shoulders individually. Uh, it's nobody else's, nobody else's fault. Joe? We're going to talk about that. So it's a great question. Joe's question is, temptation itself is not sinful. And we're talking a little bit about there's a slight difference between temptation and desire. Some people would categorize it the same. They're, they're one in the same. Now let me just say this, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, desire in and of itself is not sinful, right? Um, if I have the desire to go eat lunch because I'm hungry, that's not a bad desire. If I uh, get hungry, and every time I get hungry, I go to the buffet and I eat until I can't walk out of there, that's a problem, right? My desire for food is now uh, something I'm worshiping. It's something that uh, I think is going to satisfy me, fulfill me. Uh, that's gluttony. And I've now turned from worshiping the Lord or having the Lord as my priority and uh, food is my priority, right? And we'll talk about this next time too, is uh, we need to understand the differences in desire and temptation, and we'll kind of clarify those. But not everybody has the same uh, temptations with regard to different things, right? Well, here's a good example for that. You could put 
an apple pie baked by Marlene on every table in this room. You all know what she her capabilities are in cooking. You could put an apple pie that she baked on every table in this room. It wouldn't faze me a bit. I could walk out of here and not have the slightest remorse of not taking one of those apple pies. If she baked, let's say there's a hundred apple pies that she baked in this room and one lemon meringue pie. Now there's a problem. <laughs> now there's a problem, right? All of us are different. All of us are different. One thing that is a temptation for some person may not be a temptation for the other person at all. Now, for most of you, if those apple pies were in here, that'd be a problem, right? Not for me, <laughs> not for me. Not because I don't like Marlene's cooking. Um, that's not the issue. The issue is whether I have a desire to eat an apple pie or not, and I have zero desire to eat an apple pie. As goofy as that is, I have zero desire, right? So that's what we need to be careful. You had something, Bob? It seems to me, though, that desire could be sinful because it depends on what you desire. Yes. Like if I desire to eat an apple pie, but I don't. But if I desire yeah. something that's sinful, right. like I desire to be like God, um, that's sinful from, begin, from the get-go. Um, Whether I act upon it or not. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, and again, that's where we kind of, sometimes the line can be muddied a little bit because desire certainly can be an ungodly desire. There's no question about it. Uh, certainly that falls into kind of the lust category. But even desire, uh, desire isn't necessarily, in and of itself is not sinful. It's when we desire something that is either ungodly or we desire it so much that it now uh, supplants uh, God's position. That's when that desire becomes a problem. Uh, that's when it really transitions into what we would call the lust, and then you're talking about the acting on it. The acting on it is is key. I guess I would say desire. I wouldn't say desire is not sinful. Yeah. Because desire can be sinful. Right. In my mind. Correct. To, to, to Joe's point, temptation isn't necessarily sinful. If I if I'm driving on the street and there's a billboard that is, you know, there and kind of tempts me. Yep. That's not necessarily my fault. What I do, how I act upon that right. is, but just the fact sure. that I see something and it's tempting to me yep. isn't necessarily sinful. Right. But I, I think desire is is kind of acting upon it in some cases. Again, yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll flush it out next time, I promise. <laughs> yeah, there is, we've got to be careful on how we uh, look at the two, right? Um, uh, desire is not uh, not necessarily sinful in and of itself. So um, you think about just uh, somebody desires to be married. That's not a sinful desire. may not be God's will, but it's not a sinful desire. Now, how they go about fulfilling that or acting on it could be extremely problematic. So we'll, we'll flush it out. All right? Let's pray, and uh, we'll, we'll be done. Father, thank you for our time this morning in, in the book of James and just a little part that we got through here today and some of the things to think about. Uh, and maybe as we think about continuing through this section of Scripture, may it be reinforced in our hearts and our minds that uh, of utmost importance is having a right understanding of who you are, 
if we have a right understanding of who you are, then all these other things really fall into place. So help us with that as we think through these things and as we continue to make our way through this section of Scripture. Uh, help us also, too, to be about the one anotherings of Scripture as we um, continue to move forward as uh, a family of God here at Bethel, that we would continue to love one another, encourage one another, care for one another, all those things. May those be in our hearts and minds as well as, uh, as uh, we move forward in our walk with Christ. We ask those things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen and learn with us. We hope that next time you'll join us in person. We meet every Sunday morning at 8.30 and 10 a.m. In addition to our traditional worship service, we also offer Sunday school classes for children and adults, as well as child care services in our staffed nursery. For more information about Bethel Baptist Church, please visit our website.